Hello, everybody. Peter Murphy and Chase Clark here with the Buying Tampa Bay podcast. Today, we're continuing our pro series where we're interviewing some of the people you'll meet on your road to buying and investing in real estate. And that is realtors. They're the personification of the real estate industry. Haters gotta hate them. Lots of people want to be them. Lots of people are them, right? They're somewhat responsible for up to 6% of the costs of buying a property. And as tech advances, there's no sector that's under attack more for the value proposition it brings to the real estate game. Chase, you and I are both realtors, right? So we should make that disclosure right out of the gate. Yeah, that's right. Proud to be realtors, right? And believe it or not, we're one, we're actually two of about 196,000 licensed real estate agents in Florida. And at, right here in wow. the Tampa Bay area, we're only two of 16,000 people that claim to be realtors or that are licensed realtors, I should say. You know, 49% um, of those, according to the Warren Group, claim to be full-time. So there may be a lot of licensed agents out there, but you know, there's not very many, less than half really, that are actually doing this as a full-time career, which is interesting, but it still leaves a lot of players in the playing field. And so I think today what we're gonna look at is how do we differentiate ourselves when there's so many people out there that are realtors, that are licensed yeah. real estate agents in the state of Florida, all trying to do the same thing, vying for the same business. You know, How do we become different? How do we stand out? so that clients want to work with us? Yeah, those are great questions. And, and so this week, we're going to chat with two veteran real estate agents, Kim Barth and Dave Tao. And they're here to, to take all our hard questions about realtors, right? So we're approaching this podcast as integrity in real estate because the honor of the industry seems to be so interconnected with realtors and their professionalism or lack thereof. And Kim and Dave are some of the best realtors I know personally. So maybe together we can make some sense of the value proposition of the realtor in today's real estate transaction. So welcome to the show, Kim Barth. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And welcome, Dave Tao. Hi, Peter. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, guys. And it's about time we had some realtors on the show. So tell me a little bit about yourselves. Why don't we start ladies first, of course. Kim, kick us off. Tiny background, tiny bio, whatever you want to say about yourself. And then throw the mic over to Dave. All right. Well, I'll just tell you that I um, am a wife of almost 37 years. I have a mother of three and a grandmother of two, or a nanny, rather. Um, I got my license back in 2013, and I joined with Chase and Peter and Dave in 2014. And then Dave and I started a uh, team in 2015, and we sold over 175 houses together. And that's like you're one of 200,000 realtors doing that. So congratulations. You got a like a 5% share of the market. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Dave, tell us something about you. Well, before I joined uh, you and uh, Chase at uh, your company, I had been in banking for over 30 years and was uh, a senior VP at a community bank. And my responsibilities included the, the retail uh uh, divisions of the bank, which included all the branches, the uh, mortgage lending area, and the investment advisors. Those are things that uh, retail customers connect with. So um, I bring that experience to the table. Uh, I even bring uh, quite a bit of experience with working with realtors from the mortgage side uh, perspective, which I think has helped me uh, in developing my skills and uh, where I focus as an agent. Oh, that's awesome. So you, your, your industry experience is deep on several sides of the real estate transaction. That should bring some good perspective to what we're talking about today. So great to have both of you on the show. Yeah, you guys have done a great job over the past eight or nine years. You know, statistics say that, you know, the average realtor does about 10, maybe 12 sides on the high end every year. You guys have trended a little bit ahead of that. You know, and so I think that speaks to, you know, the value that you guys bring to the table. But where would you guys say today, you know, starting with Kim, where would you say uh, you see realtors value inside real estate transactions today? So I find it to be an invaluable um, asset. Knowledge and experience are priceless when you're talking about the largest investment that you most people make with their um, buying and selling of properties. You don't want to find the bargain um, when you're dealing with your largest investment. 
So I think having agents is, is invaluable in the process. Yeah, so Dave, do you have any specific examples maybe of something that you've been able to bring or your team's been able to bring to the table during a transaction that was a real value add for one of your customers? Well, I feel like it happens all the time. Um, we, we've done 175 plus transactions together as a team. And before that, uh, I was involved with a couple hundred transactions for uh, institutional investors. So, um, and I think the, the main thing is the experience that we have is so deep compared to the individual who has maybe three to five times in their lifetime will they purchase or sell their home. So when you talk about having uh, the value of the agent who's done hundreds of transactions compared to even someone maybe working on their third or fourth, fifth house, mm -hmm. there's just so much background. It can be anything from, uh, how to deal with inspection issues. It can be um, how to handle the negotiation, how to uh, uh, take care of referrals to inspectors, insurance companies, uh, lenders. So it's it's a very, each step of the way, we feel like we're there and that, that experience is invaluable to buyers and sellers. Yeah, I think you're right on that. You know, the in the statistics that were put out by the Warren Report recently, the average tenure of a licensed realtor in the state of Florida is four years. And so if you think about that, that's that's right after, you know, the housing run up just started, you know, from in 2018, 19, 20, 21. Uh, those realtors have been very green through a lot of really good times for realtors. They haven't seen the hard times. They haven't had to find the deals when they haven't been there. Uh, so experience is invaluable and I, I would agree a hundred percent because there's things that you encounter and things that you see through your experience and doing transactions that you're just not going to learn taking the licensee course and you're not going to learn until you've actually been in that situation with a client and had to navigate them through it, had to do all the research, had to deal with all the different parties involved. And so I, I agree a hundred percent experience is definitely a big value add when it comes to a real estate transaction. Well, it seems like in this marketplace, people have been armed with a tool that makes them feel like true professionals, right? It's like the internet, of course. And every person's a doctor because they have WebMD and everyone's a realtor because they have Zillow, right? And Zillow has given us like a slate of value or a repository of value that lets the layman step into the market and really be able to speak with a level of expertise about their home and about the buying process, they probably never could in the past, right? And combine that with legal zoom for contracting and you know, Reddit for all the kind of boards and discussion that you might want. And you can be pretty armed and dangerous out there as a realtor, just as you could as a doctor. Now I'm not saying that being a realtor and a doctor are the same thing because there's probably a serious amount of school difference that you guys had versus you're the, the guy you're going to go see this afternoon for whatever your ailment is. Right. Although, you guys both look like the picture of health, so you're probably not. But anyway, the point is, is that that with the kind of like education and knowledge that seems to be available in the public domain for realty, we do hear a lot of questioning as to the true value that a real a real estate agent offers. So I mean, so tell me why is it that Zillow doesn't level the playing field, right? Why do people still need a realtor when you've got a powerhouse like Zillow providing you with tons of great information? What is it about all that, Dave? Well, I think real, uh, Zillow and Realtor.com and all the tools that are available on the internet certainly are very valuable. And it really prepares our clients to have an intelligent discussion with us. They ask good questions now. Uh, they understand the process a little better. But just like uh, WebMD, you can go to WebMD and find out uh, some basic information about symptoms of, of ailments, but you you usually can't cure yourself. And I think the same thing is true, even though the bar for becoming a real estate agent is much different than a doctor, you still need some expertise. You need someone who has been there and done that. Um, people doing it themselves, uh, they don't know what they don't know. They, they just, they haven't thought of everything that they need to Google to get the answers to. So, I think the realtor is the one that 
provides that information. I like clients that come to us that have already educated themselves. That's great. We then can take them from that point to uh, sort of the, the real world of the transaction. Yeah, and one other question on that, you know, and I'll direct this to Kim is, you know, what about people out there right now looking to buy who feel like, well, the listing agent's a realtor. I'll just go right to the listing agent and they can help me and help the seller at the same time, right? They, they know what they're doing. Maybe I'll even get a better deal if I just work right with the listing agent. You got any advice that uh, you could give to potential buyers? in that kind of scenario with that kind of mentality? I mean, everybody knows a realtor. Uh, everybody's related to one. Um, you need to research your realtors to see who's got the experience, who's got the uh, five-star reviews, because not going to just whoever's listing the property is the smartest choice. They may not have the experience of dealing with a transaction broker where they can represent both sides of the property. They may know too much about the property that they won't be able to give the correct information to the buyer. Um, you need to really research who you're going to work with in order to, to make that decision so that you are represented correctly. Yeah, buyer advocacy is just as important as seller advocacy it from is. the listing side. And um, that's an important thing for buyers to understand that a listing agent doesn't always have the buyer's best interest in mind. And I think that kind of speaks to uh, the next topic here that Peter's going to throw at us about integrity. Yeah, you know, so this is something I when in show prep, this always comes out in my mind. And I think it's a really big problem for realtors to have to combat against. And it was made popular by Freakonomics. Remember the Freakonomics book that came out like 20 years ago? I'm dating myself at this point. I think it was 20 years ago. Um, they've got a great, they've got a great podcast on. You can get all kinds of updates on their uh, on their thinking. But they've made this realtor dilemma concept popular. And since we're talking about integrity in real estate today, uh, this realtor dilemma suggests that realtors do not work as hard to sell a client's home as they would to sell their own home because they're not the principal, right? And because the realtor is getting paid a percentage of sale price to do negotiations on behalf of the buyer or the seller, I should say, that it, an extra one or $2,000 in the sale price is pretty meaningless, a pretty meaninglessly small component of the realtor's commission. It's like 30 bucks, right? In, in a lot of cases, in an average size transaction. So they're not gonna advocate for that extra one or $2,000 of sale price for a seller when there's only $30 on the line for them. But $1,000 extra for a seller could be a huge deal, especially if they've got a mortgage, right? It could be 10% of their, of their take home, of their, of their uh, profits on that sale. So they're, ne they're, never, they're never going to advocate quite as hard as the, as the owner would advocate for themselves in a negotiation scenario. Hence the realtor dilemma that a realtor doesn't truly bring their best negotiation tactics to the game. All right, that's the dilemma. How do you answer it? I mean, like, what is the correct answer for that when you guys are a realtor and an owner is expecting you to fight for every dollar of their money for them? Well, we, we do fight for every dollar. I think that it does come back to integrity. And when uh, Kim and I started talking about working together, um, we thought about what would make us uh, different from our competition. And we decided that integrity was that thing that we wanted to highlight. And as I mentioned before, in my banking career, I worked with hundreds of realtors and I've worked with some fantastic realtors and some that weren't all that trustworthy and they were self-dealing types of individuals. So it has to start with a commitment from your, your agent. And so when you're uh, vetting agents that you are considering using, you just need to find one that you have confidence that will have your best interest at heart. Now, when it comes to getting that last uh, $1,000 out of the deal, um, it's, it's a matter of just handling the negotiation process properly, you know, being armed with the facts. If you're working with a seller, preparing that seller up front in terms of what market value is, um, any deficiencies that their home may have in terms of deferred maintenance, you know, make sure that 
the sellers are armed with facts, make sure that the buyers are armed with facts so that when you go into the negotiation process and you start comparing your deal with a, a deal that closed last week, you'll be able to come uh, close to what the market value of that property is. And, uh, you know, that's an emotional decision too, obviously, that we can talk about. But um, if everybody is armed with facts and your agent is committed to integrity and not just trying to get your deal done so that they can move on to the next deal, um, that's the key. It's just uh, being, being committed to that transaction just like you would your own home. Uh, the negotiation process should be exactly the same. Uh, you shouldn't be willing to settle for less just because it's not your uh, transaction personally. So we, we've all faced this dilemma before, right? As a listing agent, you know, you get several offers on a property and we all have a hard time not injecting our own bias based on our experience in the industry into how we look at an offer, right? We'll see a buyer come in with an FHA offer. We'll see one come in with a cash offer. We'll see one come in with conventional. And maybe we know one of the lenders and we know that lender's got a great reputation and they're definitely, you know, probably really well qualified because we know that lender and they get deals done. But this other one is offering more money, maybe with some fly-by-night lender we've never heard of before from Miami that's not even local. And then you got the cash buyer over here, maybe who's offering, you know, five grand less than the two finance deals, but hey, it's cash, it's going to get done, and it's going to close quicker. You know, how, how, do we, how do we approach that with a seller knowing that, hey, we got a bird in the hand with a cash offer, we've got a lender that we know, we got a foreign lender we don't know, and we've got numbers that are within that, you know, $5,000 range of each other, you know? What, what, it, what do we do to give this, you know, advice to the seller and, and maintain our integrity yet with our own experience overlaid on top of that recommendation. I feel like you, taking the approach that you're taking and putting the facts before them of, hey, here's an FHA offer, here's a conventional offer, here's a cash offer, letting them objectively see the numbers is a good way to go because you're laying it out for them in, in a way that they can understand to help them uh, make a better decision or make it easier for them to distinguish between the offers. But at the end of the day, so many times this, the seller comes back to me and says, okay, if it were you, what would you do, right? And I'm thinking to myself, well, it really depends on a lot of subjective factors, right? Because I'm not them. I may not need that extra thousand dollars right now to cover closing costs or to buy furniture in my new house or whatever the case might be. I may be looking for a certain return on investment and be ready to go. And so in that case, I want to take the guaranteed deal. So when it comes to recommendations, what, what other advice would you give to a seller other than laying out the objectivity of the numbers? Um, what else do you offer them if they ask you, what would you do? We get back to the experience component. So I, I think it's important to lay out the differences between multiple offers and then to discuss each one of those line items in terms of, of risk and reward. So sometimes the highest offer is the best offer. Sometimes it's not because there are risks involved. We've had transactions where we've had great offers. We have a lender that we've never heard of and the deal blows up, you know, two days before closing because uh, they find out that uh, there's something about the property that does not qualify for the uh, lender that this mortgage broker is going to sell the property to. So it's, uh, it's a matter of balancing risk versus reward and all of those different light items. You know, one, one offer comes in where they want a seven day inspection period. The next offer comes in where there's no inspection required at all. If you have a house that has deferred maintenance on it, you that may be a pretty important factor that you want to think about and compare that giving something up for another thousand dollars. So it's a matter of talking them through the risks and rewards for each one of the uh, major line items that we consider relevant to the negotiations. Yeah, the the realtor dilemma 
speaks of this situation as though it's all about cash in pocket, right? And I think what I'm observing more and more, the more I participate in transactions, that a sale of a house is not all about cash in pocket. There's a, there's a host of reasons that someone views one offer as better than the other. And it's not just because the amount that you're, you're net to seller at the end of the, of the transaction is greatest. You know, maybe, maybe you just like the state that the buyer comes to you in. They're, they're in a position that looks a lot like you when you were buying that home, right? A young family bringing, you know, a, a state of, of, a, of a stage of life that's in, that's just attractive and exciting to you. And you want them to be the recipient of your home. That is your prerogative as a seller to sell your home to that person versus an investor who might come with an offer of one or $2,000 more than you. And it's your prerogative to sell to a cash buyer who comes with no complexities in their financing versus someone who comes with a an FHA or a VA loan. And although they may need that loan to qualify for the home, that's a far more complex deal than coming to you with coming to you with a cash offer to buy your home. And that's your prerogative as a seller to, to accept that. And it's your prerogative as a seller to, to accept a deal that's closing in a week versus waiting 45 days because maybe you do need the money right now. And all of those things stack up to create a, a decision that's much more complex than just whether or not you're getting the most money from a deal. So Freakonomics needs to dig a little deeper into this concept, I think, before they attribute uh, nefarious motives to realtors that somehow are not negotiating strongly for sellers. I'm not sure that's exactly what's happening in these deals. No, you know, an experience tells us that so much of this has to do with timing, right? As we've seen over the last five years with, with prices going up and up and up and up, people that bought 10 years prior, you know, on, on the heels of the housing bust had tons of equity in their homes. And so you saw the proliferation of low hassle selling, right? They didn't care about getting every last dollar for their home necessarily. They just didn't want to do any showings. They didn't want to have to clean the house all the time. They didn't want to deal with any of that. So they were willing to sell for probably something less than market in order to avoid all that hassle. So totally correct. Everyone, I think this speaks to the uniqueness of every buyer and seller. They've all got different objectives. They've all got different things at the top of their priority list. And the goal for us as real estate agents is trying to figure out what that is and how best to maximize that for our client. And uh, that's that's something we, we all try to bring to the table. I know uh, uh, it's part of that integrity equation, right? Is having the buyer's best interest at heart. And really what that is in terms of our service that we provide is finding what, what we can do to best meet their desired outcome. Yeah, I love it. Well, well, tell me this disclosure, right? This is a big deal. And it seems like, you know, if you look at what the major duties of a realtor are or is, disclosure is like the most basic and the most important of those duties of a realtor. And, and that includes disclosing all known facts that materially affect the value of a property and that are not readily observable, right? So I'm gonna say that again, because I think it's really important. Disclose all known facts that materially affect the value of a property and are not readily observable. So talk to us about disclosure, guys. I mean, how do you navigate what, what seems to be kind of like a complex area these days in real estate, because yeah, we're not selling a widget, right? We're selling a super complex system of things in real estate, of houses and locations and all their histories and who knows what that exactly is. So disclosure is complex and it's hard, but it's your primary duty as a realtor. How do you navigate it? I mean, we, we talk openly with our clients and just try to get as much information from them as possible. Uh, you know, we, we try to alleviate any kind of potential lawsuit that could be put against them um, if they don't disclose it, but also not have to show every nail hole in the wall. You know, so we we have those open conversations with our clients to give them that kind of information. Yeah, one of the most fundamental things here in the state of Florida, right, is that we have every seller fill out a seller property disclosure, right? That's one of the things that's required. And so tell us a little bit about that form, maybe, and why that form is important, both for, from a listing agent perspective and a seller's perspective, as we're trying to meet this disclosure requirement. Well, that form is designed to uh, provide full disclosure and protection in 
various areas that are most important. So you're you're looking at uh, the roof and the uh, found the plumbing, the uh, HVAC, electrical. You're looking at those things to determine uh, if there have been issues in the past that the seller is aware of and they need to let the buyer know about those things because those issues are things that affect the value. Um, they affect the ongoing cost of ownership for the person who's buying the property and they are required by the state of Florida to disclose any uh, issues like that. We encourage people to answer the questions that are there and only answer those questions because the state of Florida has decided these are the most important things that uh, individuals need to disclose. And not that we advocate hiding anything, but uh, don't answer questions and bring up issues about things that generally are not considered uh, extremely important in the whole uh, scheme of things. And homeownership always brings a certain amount of unknowns and ongoing maintenance. But what we're trying to determine is, are there things that are affect the structure and the mechanical function of the house. And let's limit the discussion to those things. So, so I'm thinking it's the Goonies, isn't it? Where like whoever that brother and sister were, they had captured chunk, not a chunk, like the, you know, the chubby kid in the Goonies. And they're like, tell me everything. Right. And the kid starts like, when I was three years old, I stole something and he starts crying and he goes into this long history that was like obviously irrelevant. And I know this because I just watched Goonies like about a year ago with my kids. And man, one of the top, one of the best movies of all time. But over disclosure, right? I mean, like some people just want to do it, right? They have this conscience in them that's like, I've got to, I've got to tell you everything, right? Everything that's ever happened to this property and everything that might or might not have actually happened. And who knows really, because maybe I'm leaving something out. But the disclosure requirement is that we disclose all known facts about a property, not maybes or what ifs or this might have happened to an owner several times ago. Those are not things that a seller can know about a property factually. They're hearsays or guesses. And who knows? Maybe they did happen and maybe they didn't happen. Right. And people's memories get very fuzzy on that sort of stuff. So the disclosure requires all known facts. And it also requires all known things that are not readily observable. You walk into a home and you've got a roof leak and it's a big wet spot on the ceiling. That's readily observable, right? It's not, we're not hiding anything on that. But if someone has painted over it with kills and done a really good job of trimming it out and you don't even know it's there anymore, that's, that's not a readily observable problem. But people do that all the time to put like, you know, to cover up a problem because they don't want to look at it and they just haven't fixed it. So that's a different item there. So facts and ready observation are really critical components here, not this uh, insatiable desire to over-disclose. Yeah, so one of my favorite things, favorite stories I've had is, I remember one time going to see a property as a buyer and the seller was home. So I, I show up, you know, the listing agent's there, but the seller's also there. And so the listing agent is giving me a tour of this home, kind of glossing over everything. Meanwhile, this elderly woman is is right in my shadow here saying, oh, don't don't forget that that door handle. You got to jiggle it three or four times before it'll open, you know, and oh, this door over here doesn't lock. And those hinges are really squeaky and, you know, on and on and on. You know the story. You probably had that, too. Uh, but yeah, that's the kind of thing, right? It's like, you know, none of that stuff's necessarily material, but it happens in homes, right? We don't need to know that stuff. In fact, how much of the responsibility for this falls to the buyer, right? Buyers need to get a home inspection, right? So I'm going to fill out that form as a seller. I'm going to disclose, you know, when the roof was put on, how old the air conditioner is, if I've had any leaks, you know, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, as a buyer, or if I'm representing a buyer, I'm saying, hey, you need to get a home inspection, right? So how much of that responsibility falls on, on the buyer versus the seller? I think it... Uh it does fall on the, the buyers uh, and the buyer's agent to go through that process because we just want to make sure that the buyer knows what they're getting. And you don't have to, we, we run into situations, first of all, where we always ask 
sellers not to be present during a showing of their house because they they feel compelled to uh, enter into polite conversation with uh, everybody that walks in their front door because it's their home, you know, so they want to be nice. And before you know it, they're talking about uh, the neighbor's dog that likes to uh, do his business in their backyard or the neighbor across the street who parks his car in the grass. And it can go, the conversation can go anywhere, not just the house, but the, the external influences too that aren't covered in that. And it's up to the buyer's agent to help their buyer navigate that process. And we do highly, highly recommend getting a home inspection. And we want to make sure that the buyers are informed in terms of all the mechanical systems that uh, if they're functioning properly and what the age of those systems are and uh, the anticipated uh, things that they may see in the near future uh, once they buy the house in terms of ongoing maintenance issues. Yeah. Marketing seems very closely connected to this. And Kim, I know you're very good at it for the listings that you've put together. But of course, in marketing right now, we've got wonderful technologies that allow us to portray the absolute most beautiful aspects of a home and not emphasize the less than beautiful ones, right? And so we've, we've all looked at listings where it looks like an absolute palace you're looking at and you go and see it and not so much, right? They neglected to include some very large thing in the background of the, of the house that's actually there in real life, right? So that the, the, the camera was perfectly positioned to cut off all of that, right? And, you know, when you're taking pictures of rooms, you don't have to show like the big stain on the floor, right? You can take a picture of the of the beautiful corner and the wonderful furniture, which just so happens to like be on top of this horrible stain, right? So marketing creates a tough dilemma from a disclosure standpoint. How do you straddle that dilemma for clients? I mean, what do you view your job as when you're trying to market a home? And how do you not run afoul of some pretty big integrity or ethical issues when it comes to putting too much of a, of a good foot forward? Well, I mean, it's very important to have the property disclosure filled out and attached to the listing. So if they are using an agent, they have access to that information. When you're taking pictures, you want to accent all the good parts. You don't want to focus right on the stain, but you could put, take a picture that actually has, you know, a, a shadow of it or something. Um, Dave and I also try to look at things from a, a bird's eye view as opposed to just zooming into things too. So if there is commercial near them or a road track or a gas station or um, a pole in front of the house, you know, you have to, you have to put those things on there at some point, or even just with the directions, you know, if a good agent is, knows the streets that they're driving, they'll know, oh, wait, that's off of this road that has a gas station right behind there. So just knowing your territory and knowing your client's um, product is important. Yeah, and I think too, you know, if I was a seller, I think there would be kind of a, a dilemma there between wanting to put the best foot forward with my property, but also representing it accurately enough that I attract the right buyer, right? Because so many times the conflicts in a transaction come into play where you've got the wrong buyer for the home. The buyer thought it was something different than what it actually is, right? And that's when you have issues, is it not? That is when that is when you have issues. We talked about that seller's disclosure and uh, making sure that it, things that are uh, important are disclosed because those things are going to come out at the end of the day during the inspection period. And when inspections uh, bring back issues that need to be addressed, that opens up the negotiation process all over again. And so uh, you're you're back to possibly negotiating price. Uh, negotiating repairs, uh, possibly losing the deal entirely. And so you've lost a couple weeks time. So it's important that we prepare sellers, first of all, with the realities of, of any issues that their home has. That way, because you know we all love our homes and we think they're fantastic, but we need to bring in sort of a, a realistic but gentle um, description of their property for them so that they know compared to other properties that have sold recently how their home stacks up and help them establish that value in light of any uh, external influences perhaps that affect 
their particular value and to remind them that disclosing it up front will uh, provide for a smoother transaction. You won't be wasting time and renegotiating things later on in the transaction. Yeah, you know, we're not we're not Philip Morris here. You know, I'm always amazed that the cigarette marketing that it even exists. Imagine being the marketer of cigarettes. Like your job is to portray cigarettes in a way that says this product will kill you and you should not buy it, but you actually get people to buy it. I mean, that's that's marketing mastery that anyone can do that, right? So that's not where we are exactly, right? We have an industry where there are all kinds of realities that you know you can't really hide. If there's power lines running overhead at your home, or you've got, you're located right behind a landfill, I mean, e even if a seller chooses to omit that item from the angle of the picture he's taking, what reasonable buyer cannot determine that with ready with ready ease? And what reasonable buyer's agent cannot immediately tell them they don't want to buy that house, even if it looks gorgeous in the pictures, because they know this buyer doesn't want to live uh, right beside a, a landfill, right? So it's choosing to exclude that from the photograph is not omitting something that cannot be readily observed when someone shows up at that property. And there's a really good chance that the price of the property will reflect the fact that it's located by a landfill, right? So it's going to look kind of cheap for the beautiful house that it is if it has that kind of a reality uh, affecting it. So, you know, I think some of this stuff uh, can be played up for, uh, for a shock value. Realtors all the time are going to omit things from photos that can be readily observed and should be seen by any real reasonable buyer. And that does not make them violate their disclosure requirement, right? Now, it, it would be a different factor if you take a picture from an angle and you edit out whatever was there. I think there's some pretty clear realtor standards for that kind of virtual manipulation of photographs. Am I, am I correct about that, guys? That standard does require that we not make changes to photos that we take. They must actually depict what is there. You can't cut it out. Right. You can't make the grass look greener. You can't right. uh, touch up the paint uh, chips on, around the window frames. You have to represent the property for what it really is. You can't, you could do a lot of amazing things with Photoshop, but the reality is that's, first of all, it's not ethical. Secondly, you're going to get people who come out to look at the property and they're going to be extremely disappointed and you're just, uh, wasting everyone's time and you're not helping your seller because you're not marketing the product for what it really is and so it's not going to be successful in terms of timeline if you're not representing it properly yeah you know and and talking about you know representing properties properly and finding the right buyer for the right property you know so many real estate agents are also investors Right. And so many investors end up getting a real estate license, partly because you have access to MLS. Uh, you can buy properties at a discount because you're going to get a commission as the buyer's agent representing yourself as an investor. So sometimes as a realtor, you come into a situation where a seller calls you up and says, hey, look, I've got this house I need to sell and I'd really like to get $200,000 for the house. And then you go and do a CMA on it and it's worth 325. And in your investor brain, you're saying, ding, 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 ding. I just scored a jackpot, $200,000 house. All right. You know, but they've asked you to come and be their listing agent and you know, the house is worth 325. So we know this kind of self-dealing sometimes goes on, but you know, how do we avoid that? What is our responsibility as a real estate agent who has been contacted to fully and fairly represent a seller? I mean, you, you have to have integrity is the bottom line. You know, when you go to somebody who is a friend or comes to you asking for value, you have to get true value, even if you're an investor. That That is a moral compass for an individual. So does that include education? In your perspective, Kim, that person who comes to you and says, I want 200,000 for my home, but it's actually worth 300,000. You know that, right? So you're, you're, uh, you're overlaying your obligation as a realtor to educate that seller to what their home is truly worth. Is that correct? A hundred percent. I think um, as a realtor, you're taking the oath that you're going to be ethical and honest and 
telling somebody that their house is worth less than what it is is not either one of those. And so giving them the education to show them where they can get more money for their property is ethical. Or allowing them to, or not allowing them to live in ignorance, really. I mean, you have, some people have, you know, near lethal levels of ignorance that are costing them a lot of money. And it's not our job as realtors who are licensed and who have, have committed themselves to integrity to allow that ignorance to disadvantage our clients. And certainly not to allow them to disadvantage our clients at our own game, right? And that's, I think, where a lot of these issues have come up. If I'm not mistaken, Dave, when you've seen some of these challenges with the self-dealing by realtors, it's that they're trying to get the listing in their own pocket. Absolutely. I think that uh, it, it does come back to sort of your core values. And uh, sometimes not everyone has those same core values. But uh, even if you look at it from a, a slightly different angle, for an agent, even if they don't have the integrity as one of their core values, it's just not a smart thing to do to uh, go in and take advantage of a client uh, because that will come back and bite you. You know, you do that a couple times and no one is ever going to trust you. If you find out that uh, a friend has a house for sale and you let them sell it to you for an under market uh, price, somebody's going to educate them. If you don't, I guarantee you, they probably know at least two other agents. They're going to find out about this transaction and your reputation is going to be uh, damaged and it's uh, rightfully so. Yes, I guess, uh, you know, I, if you're a realtor and an investor, does it matter in what capacity you're brought to the table, right? Because I've got plenty of people that call me up. They may or may not know that I'm a realtor, but they're calling me because they know I buy houses. And so they'll call me up and they'll say, hey, I want to sell my house. I want to get 250 for my house. And I show up and I'm like, yeah, I'll gladly pay you 250 for your house. No problem. The house may be worth 325, but they didn't call me to list their house. They called me as an investor who buys homes. So does capacity matter there? Um, just because I have a license hanging on the wall back in my office, am I when I'm called as a buyer and an investor, am I supposed to cough up 325 when they only want 250? Yeah, that's a really good question, Chase. And you know, and again we're back to the old the over disclosure situation right now your license if you're licensed does require that you disclose to that seller that you are licensed you must make that statement in the transaction generally in the contract that you that the buyer is a broker right because it does it is considered an advantage in the transaction but you're right i mean do you then go to the extra level to say i am a broker and oh by the way I know you're happy with 250,000, but there's a possibility that you could get 300,000. And so are you required to go that extra step? And I think that's a very important question. And then is it, is it that black and white, right? Because maybe you can get 300,000, but you've got to make this repair and that repair. And Chase is going to be this easy buyer for this seller who's not going to require them to do any repairs and give them 250. So maybe that ha has some bearing in all of this too. So and what do you think, Dave? I think it gets back to that, uh, value proposition in terms of looking at an, an offer that perhaps is a, a cash offer or one that you know will actually close versus putting it out on the open market and seeing what might happen. And it's it's always a buyer beware sort of thing. Chase uh, might be approached by a friend who wants to sell him something and he, he, he might want to jump on it, but there could be issues too, you know, that that he has to deal with in the future. There's there's risk associated when you buy a property as an investor that there are going to be repairs that need to be made, uh, perhaps tenants that have to be evicted. There's there's all kinds of complications on the investment side that uh, could enter into the financial viability of this transaction. So, I think it's an entirely separate thing if someone comes to you says i want to sell you this then you can um you can decide for yourself whether or not uh, that's a appropriate way to go or not 
Yeah. Yeah. Another uh, way realtors do this sometimes is with a net listing deal. Have you guys ever done a net listing? No, I have. It's actually, it's actually no. something that's allowed, mm -hmm. um, but very rarely done. Right? Uh, there's forms for it put out by Florida Realtors where you can do a net listing where you know for whatever reason a, a seller wants to you know get two fifty for the house, and you disclose to them up front that you might be able to get three hundred, and you're going to list it for three hundred. And instead of paying you 3%, 6%, whatever the commission is, they agree to pay you the difference in the price. Um, so there are those options out there. And sometimes, you know, that's what works best for the seller. For whatever reason, that's what they choose to do. But I think the most important thing in all of this, as Peter mentioned, from an investor standpoint, the investor needs to disclose that they're an agent or a broker. We need to disclose the fact that you could get more money. You need to disclose the fact that there are certain defects in the house affecting the price. And as long as you're up front with this and don't put the buyer or seller in a situation where they're backed into a corner or they have to make a decision under some, some level of duress, I think that's what we're trying to avoid here. We're trying to protect the consumer, protect our client, and do what's best for everyone in the transaction. Yeah, I think that's right, Chase. And I think you can make, you can add some steps. And if you're a seller, then you need to make your intentions and motives very clear to whoever it is you're working with. That's your realtor or the wholesaler that's calling you to help you buy your house or whatever else it might be. Make your intentions clear and make sure you understand what their intentions are. Because if your intentions as a seller are to sell as fast as you can because you need out as quickly as possible then you're going to attract a different kind of buyer, right? Maybe that wholesale buyer is exactly what you want because they're going to bring a lower price, but they're not going to require inspections or repairs or they're going to be a cash buyer and it's going to be easy and you're out. But you know that you're not maximizing your sale price, right? And you're making that intentions clear, that intention clear. And if you're the buyer of that property, you're digging around to understand your client's intentions because if their intentions is to maximize their sale price, then you have no ethical right not to tell them what their, their maximum sale price could be if they made some improvements or if they waited a little longer or if they sold to a finance buyer. That, it would seem to me, would be your obligation as a buyer or a realtor in that deal to make sure that you clearly communicate what someone's, uh, what someone's final objective, uh, an aligned objective with every uh, seller or buyer that you're working with. That seems to me to be a very important step to take. Yeah, you know, and, and that kind of leads us into, you know, every every licensee, when you become a realtor, and that is how you say it, it's not realtor, by the way, we'll just throw that in there for everyone out there that doesn't pronounce it correctly. A realtor, uh, you're bound by obligations, right? And it depends on what your relationship is with the buyer or seller as to what those obligations are. And the state of Florida outlines these very clearly as being a single agent, being a transaction broker, or having no brokerage relationship whatsoever, right? And so you guys want to talk a little bit about those three relationships and what's required under each of them. And, you know, also maybe include like why uh, in certain relationships, some obligations are required and some aren't. Well, with um, a single agent, there's nine different uh, responsibilities that we have to the client. We have to deal honestly and fairly, which with all of them, we have to do the same. You have to be loyal to a single agent, and that's just representing the one client as a buyer or a seller. Um, you have to have confidentiality. So if they give you information, you are not to share that. Um, you have to obedience. You have to give full disclosure um, to the, the buyer or seller. Um, you have to account for all the funds. You have to have your skill and care and diligence, present offers and counter offers in a timely fashion, and disclose all known facts about the property that are not readily, readily observed. A lot of times, if you're representing somebody with a single agent, you can transfer to a transaction broker and represent them and the other side at the same time, which negates some of those responsibilities like loyalty, confidentiality, obedience, and full disclosure. If you uh, just are have a no brokerage uh, relationship, then it still is uh, where you don't have an agreement with anybody, 
but you're, you have to deal fairly and honestly and disclose all known facts just like you would otherwise and account for the funds properly. The, the main uh, two instances I think that we usually encounter are single agent and transaction broker. And the, uh, we primarily deal as a transaction broker because that way we're not limiting ourselves to the fact that we, we might have a buyer already for a, uh, somebody that's looking for a house just like the one that we're listing. So we don't eliminate ourselves from that situation. Or if we happen to find a, a buyer that comes to us after we've already listed it, we're a single agent, we can switch as, as Kim indicated, as long as we give that disclosure. In all of these um, capacities, when it comes to honesty, integrity, accounting for funds, your, the requirements are the same. Where the differences are is just in disclosing known facts um, or confidential information that uh, the seller has shared with you that they don't want you sharing with anyone else. That particular role is slightly different in the single agent capacity. So just to be specific about that, what you're saying there is that if you're a single agent, you cannot disclose the fact that like a seller has to sell because they're getting transferred for a job and they need they need to get out and that, which would i guess you can't tell a buyer that fact but you could disclose that fact if you were a transaction broker correct you you could in that case and, and, and that would have a big that would have a big bearing on negotiations right that piece of information would certainly affect a buyer coming to the picture potentially because they could say well this seller needs to sell he's got this this ticking time bomb over him he's got to get out for this new job so he might be more amenable to my offer or a below price offer is that the logic behind that yeah it is and i think the um the question about the whole transaction broker role i think comes into play because I think it's misinterpreted to be a role that you take on that is very self-serving for the agent. And that that's really not the case. It's a role that you take on to ensure that both sides can fairly come to some sort of an agreement. We can do it on a perhaps more rapid timeline. We can be fair to all parties involved and just get the deal done because we have enough information from both sides to know what needs to happen to make this transaction be a successful closing. So I think it's a, it's an advantage that we offer. It's not a self-serving disadvantage to sellers to have a transaction broker assisting them. So I think the real, the real rub that always comes in or, or the dilemma I guess you're faced with, even if you're a transaction broker is, does disclosing something like the seller is being transferred and have to sell affect the value of the property? Or the question that always comes up is, do you currently have any other offers, right? Other agents will ask you that. Um, or, you know, what is it going to take to win this bid, right? You know, I, I've, I've heard these questions. I myself, as an investor buyer, have often asked these questions, seeing what I can fish out of the agent, right? Because you want to put yourself in the most advantageous competitive position, right? To be able to buy the home uh, and, and do it for the lowest price possible. So even under transaction broker on number nine, where it says there's limited confidentiality, right? You know, it prevents disclosure that a seller will accept a lower price or disclosure of any known facts that materially affect the value of the property, right? It's really subjective. But... When it comes to the negotiation part, it's like this is where the rubber meets the road quite often because everyone's fishing for an advantage, right? So what's your response when an agent calls you up and says, hey, you got any other offers on this property yet? Or, you know, what's it going to take to win this, win this bid? Well, if you're acting as a transaction broker, you are a little more free to have a frank discussion and uh, just uh, – tell them you've got half a dozen offers and that you're going to have to be above asking price if you want to have a chance at this. And you, you want to represent all parties involved fairly, 
but um, you are a little bit more free in the transaction broker role. What stops you from saying, I mean, it would seem to me that it, that it would be a very strong negotiating position to say, I have a half dozen offers and the highest one is 215,000 and asking price is 200,000. Why would you not go to that extent? I think you can go to that extent. I would phrase it in a way that um, would not encourage an offer of uh, 216,000, you know, because you don't know what you might get. So I think you might be able to disclose a, uh, uh, something, you could say something like, it's going to take more than a certain number or that you're, the market's hot. It's we we have half a dozen offers. I can tell you right now, it's not going to sell for less than X. And uh, we don't know what the number is going to be because there are multiple people who are uh, considering presenting uh, second offers. Yeah. So I've seen recently uh, some agents take a tactic that appears to be you know, well above the bar in terms of getting rid of these kinds of scenarios where you've got these questions coming in or you've got to kind of be stealthy in your disclosure of what's the true situation, where they'll put a listing out and they'll say, look, we're not taking any offers for the first three days. And then after that, I want your highest and best offer within three days after that. So you've got a three to five day showing window and I'm gonna take highest and best from everyone, basically saying, don't call me and ask me what the situation is. Get your highest and best offer in by the deadline. We'll review all these offers with the seller. And then we may come back to the top two, top three, and ask them to go even better in, in some scenario, right? So what do you think about that strategy? What are the pros and the cons to that? Well, I think, I think it's a good strategy. I think that um, we have done that and we've been involved in a lot of transactions that, that do that. It, it uh, sort of levels the playing field and encourages uh, quick action and uh, no game playing. You know, it's not, nobody's going to get a deal on this. And in the market that we've been in lately, you've been able to do that. You go in and you say, uh, I don't, I'm not even going to look at offers for three days. Give me your highest, best. And then we'll decide where we're going to go from there. It's a very efficient way, and um, it's fair to everyone uh, involved. It doesn't really uh, encourage anybody from trying to uh, get an exceptional deal on their purchase. But that hasn't been uh, a likelihood in the market we've been in anyway. So I think it's an efficient way to get things done, get a good price for your seller, and get it done quickly. I have to think, though, some of these tactics are not are not the best. It's so hard to know, right? What actually brings the most money for a house? So I'll use some hypothetical numbers here, but I just bought a house, right? And the seller was asking three hundred thousand, and I live close to this house, so it's worth more to me because I want to own the things that are right beside me for a whole variety of reasons. People do that, right? And so. They wanted my highest and best offer, but I put into this interesting dilemma where my highest and best offer would likely be well in excess of what someone will view as a market value for that home because it matters to me to own that home. So I need to almost, so if I threw out my highest and best and it was like 10 or 20% above asking, but there was someone else in there and they were 25% above asking, I might even want to go a little bit more than that so that I get control of the home and someone else doesn't. At, at some point, that reality must be considered, I think, by, by a seller and by their advisors, you guys as their agents. But there, there has to be a place for transparency to some degree where you can say that, that disclose the prices you've, you're getting to the parties who are involved. Because there might be a case where there's some guy like me who will pay a thousand or two more almost at almost any price on the table so that he can keep control of that property and just allowing there to be a throw out your highest and best and then call the negotiation process closed at that point and just taking the highest offer on the table might still be leaving money on the table so i bring up all that to say this is dynamic this is not a cut and dry process and i think maybe we're dealing with a, a unique situation 
every time you go to sell a house or what the best tactic might be. It is because the danger is, is that you advise your seller to accept an offer and then the next day something better comes in, right? Exactly. We've all had that happen probably, especially in this market, right? You tell them to go with an FHA buyer who's offering, you know, asking or better, and then a cash offer for 10 grand higher comes in the next day, right? It's uh, you just can't help it, right? It, it, and it really is, again, I think we're going back to what is the objective of the seller or the buyer and how do we best work with integrity to meet that goal, right? And if uh, an offer, an FHA offer at asking price meets that goal for them, fantastic. Let's move on. Let's help that seller achieve their goal and get on to the next deal and not worry about the fact that, you know, some institution was willing to pay something maybe a little bit more, but maybe have a little bit more headache involved in the deal. Well, wrap it up for us, guys. It's been a fantastic conversation. A lot of fun to jaw with you guys for about an hour. Feel me, give me that last piece of advice, uh, Kim and Dave, each of you. We'll start with Kim, maybe, that you'd want to leave with a buyer or a seller or anyone listening to this podcast for how to like, you know, make a good decision when it comes to real estate. What's that golden nugget uh, that you want them to remember? Maybe it's related regarding setting prices. Maybe it's regarding choosing a realtor. Uh, but tell me what that thing might be for you that you'd want to leave in your listener's ear. I think it's definitely uh, the agent who's representing you. You need to find somebody who doesn't look at the bottom line for themselves, that they're looking for your interest only, and um, can help navigate that process, whether it's getting that great deal, whether it's offering higher, or whether it's um, having the integrity to show them properties that don't have any benefit to the agent at all. Um, find a good realtor to help you uh, navigate that process because it is probably one of the biggest investments that you'll make as an individual. Yeah, I think uh, the agent is key and the agent, in our opinion, obviously we're biased, is, is vital to getting the best price for a seller and the best representation uh, for a buyer as well. So you want to find somebody that you trust you can determine that either through personal referrals of friends who've used agents before that have similar values to you. You can perhaps look um, for Zillow or Google reviews and see how other clients have viewed that agent in the transactions. So that to me, it's a matter of trust and a matter of experience because you really want somebody who can anticipate uh, hurdles that have to be overcome on either the buying or selling side and can help you navigate the process because even though we like to dumb it down sometimes uh, there are a lot of steps to the process and if you've never gone through it before or if you've only gone through it a few times um, each deal is different and you need somebody who has the experience to help you navigate anything that comes your way well i'll tell you what the realtor's role in the market has been remarkably resilient. With all the technologies that have come on the scene promising the demise of this professional class, not a one of them have come true. And you guys continue to play a very important part in the transaction. I can see why by some of this conversation we're having. This is not something you can easily replace with a bot or an algorithm to estimate value and negotiate this kind of a complex situation. This requires the kind of dynamicism that you've talked about today. So Chase, I get it. I can see why realtors are still in the picture. Yeah, and, and these days technology is becoming important. Realtors that are advancing themselves with knowledge, use of new technologies in the field, and most importantly, the ones that continue to operate with an ethical and moral standard that exceeds the low bar really set by the Realtor Association, I think really distinguish themselves in the market. And the clients know when they experience that. And so just because you've got an R on your shirt or on your business card, you know, it doesn't mean that you're as good as the next guy out there who has done all of these things to make themselves more valuable to you in the marketplace. So look for someone with experience, look for someone most importantly with integrity and you'll find someone that can add value to your transaction. Beautiful. Well, Kim and Dave, it was a real treat to chat with you guys. Where can listeners go to learn more about your team? 
Well, they can go to our home prop page um, and look under residential real estate. Um, they can go to our Facebook page, Integrity Team. Um, they can call us anytime. Our, our information is on both of those pages. Um, we'd love to help you. Well, thanks again, guys. It's been a real treat. And Chase, as always, a pleasure. Can't wait till next week to see which uh, pros we're evolving into, but I'm sure it'll be a blast. Sounds great. Can't wait. Sayonara, folks. <laughs>